This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to ankle fractures and replantation, which are two topics that we covered last week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with ankle fractures, and the first question reads, A 30-year-old male sustains a Gastillo-Anderson grade 1 open trimalleolar ankle fracture following a low-speed motor vehicle accident. He receives timely and appropriate antibiotic and tetanus prophylaxis in the emergency department. He undergoes debridement and irrigation, followed by open reduction and internal fixation of the right ankle eight hours following his injury. His wound appears clean after debridement, and the decision is made to close the skin primarily. Which of the following is not true? And the choices are 1. Wound vac application and delayed primary closure would reduce the risk of infection. 2. Pulsed lavage increases the risk of wound necrosis postoperatively. 3. Primary closure has a high probability of healing without complications. 4. ASA class 2 is associated with an increased risk for infection. And 5. Gastillo-Anderson grade 2 open fractures can be safely treated with primary closure at the index procedure. So delayed primary closure of low-energy Gastillo-Anderson grade 1 open fractures without gross contamination is associated with a higher risk for postoperative infection. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Wound vac application and delayed primary closure would reduce the risk of infection, which is an incorrect statement, making it the correct answer for this question. To quickly review, open fractures are described based upon the Gastillo-Anderson classification system, which is based on the severity of associated soft tissue injury. Grade 1 fractures are low energy, with wounds measuring less than 1 centimeter. Grade 2 fractures involve moderate soft tissue destruction, with wounds measuring up to 10 centimeters. Grade 3 fractures involve high energy mechanisms with severe soft tissue injury and periosteal stripping and wounds greater than 10 centimeters. Appropriate and timely antibiotics and tetanus prophylaxis, followed by operative debridement and stabilization, are vital to successful outcomes. For severe injuries, multiple debridements, stage fixation, and delayed coverage may be necessary. However, low-energy open injuries in healthy patients with minimal contamination and adequate debridement are amenable to definitive fixation and primary closure at the time of index procedure. Avaska et al. retrospectively assessed factors predictive of postoperative wound necrosis after primary closure of open ankle fractures in a cohort of 137 patients. 110 patients underwent primary closure at the index procedure. They identified ASA class 2 of greater than or equal to 2, Gastillo grade 3 open injury, and the use of pulsatile lavage and index surgery as independent risk factors for postoperative wound necrosis. Jenkinson et al. retrospectively assessed 349 Gastillo-Anderson grade 1, 2, and 3A open fractures at a single institution. 87 injuries were treated with delayed closure versus 262 injuries treated with primary closure at the index procedure following debridement and stabilization. Using a propensity score-matching algorithm, comparison of 73 matched pairs, or 146 total, demonstrated a 4.1% infection rate after primary closure versus 17.8% infection rate following delayed closure. They concluded that immediate closure of appropriately selected grade 1, 2, and 3A open fractures decreased the risk for infection compared to delayed primary closure. Moving on to the next question. A 22-year-old woman injured her ankle when she fell off a ladder. 
radiographs reveal a displaced large posterior malleolus fracture of about 45% of the joint. What is the best definitive treatment? And the choices are 1. Open reduction and internal fixation with absolute stability. 2. Open reduction and internal fixation with relative stability. 3. Closed reduction with casting. 4. Reamed locked intramedullary nailing. And 5. External fixation. So basic understanding of fracture care requires a fundamental knowledge of the principles regarding absolute and relative stability. Compression plating and anatomic reduction of articular fractures are examples of absolute stability. Bridge plating, external fixation, casting, and intramedullary nailing are all examples of relative stability. Both bone forearm fractures have long been treated with open reduction and internal fixation even in the light of open wounds. Results have been excellent with plate fixation. Recently, intramedullary nails that are contoured and locked have been used in the treatment of both bone forearm fractures, but they are not reamed. It is well established that with restoring the proper radial bow, length, and alignment, optimal function can be achieved. Open reduction and internal fixation allows this achievement. In cases where comminution exists, absolute stability may have to be sacrificed as to not strip small comminuted bone fragments. Therefore, a bridging technique is worthwhile. External fixation can be used as a temporary technique until the soft tissues are more amenable to definitive fixation. Cast treatment is not indicated in adult forearm fractures. Locking nails for forearm use are not reamed. With regards to articular fractures, anatomic reduction and rigid stabilization are required to achieve the best results and allow for fracture healing. This environment also allows for the best chance of the cartilage repair process to form hyaline-like cartilage. Open reduction and internal fixation with absolute stability is the mainstay of treatment for partial articular fractures such as split depression tibial plateau fractures and posterior malleolus fractures involving greater than about 25% to 30% of the joint. The gold standard for treatment of a closed femur fracture is a reamed intramedullary locked nail. Results are uniformly excellent. This can be done without stripping of the soft tissues such as in open reduction and internal fixation. External fixation can be used as a temporary device in patients in extremis for damage control reasons. But the correct answer to this question asking what is the best definitive treatment for a displaced large posterior malleolus fracture of about 45% of the joint, the correct answer is 1. Open reduction and internal fixation with absolute stability. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following factors has been shown to increase the risk of perineal tendon pathology in patients who have undergone posterior plating of lateral malleolus fractures? And the choices are 1. Use of cut or trimmed plates. 2. Use of straight uncontoured plates. 3. Use of locked plating. 4. Low plate placement with a prominent screw head in the distal hole. And 5. Low anti-glide plate placement. So low plate positioning with a prominent screw head in the most distal hole of the plate was shown to be correlated with perineal tendon lesions. Distal plate placement in the absence of prominent screws was not associated with tendon lesions. Trimmed plates, locked plates, and uncontoured plates have not been shown to increase the risk of perineal tendon pathology. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Low plate placement with a prominent screw head in the distal hole. Moving on to the next question. Following surgery for an ankle fracture, which of the following is considered the most important factor in achieving a satisfactory outcome? And the choices are 1. Physical therapy, 2. Early weight-bearing, 3. Anatomic alignment, 4. Early range of motion of the ankle, and 5. Calcium and vitamin D administration. 
So the only factor that is prognostic for outcomes is the quality of the reduction. So the correct answer to this question is 3, anatomic alignment. None of the other factors has any effect on the outcome. Early range of motion or physical therapy may offer temporary effects, but these small advantages do not last beyond 3 months after surgery. Moving on to the next question. In an isolated ankle syndesmotic injury, the fibula is unstable in the incisura fibularis of the tibia. In what direction is the fibula most unstable? And the choices are 1, anterior-posterior, 2, medial-lateral, 3, proximal-distal, 4, varus-valgus, and 5, equivalent instability in all axes. So when an ankle syndesmosis injury, the fibula is most unstable in the anterior and posterior direction. So the correct answer to this question is 1, anterior-posterior. This is whether or not there is an accompanying ankle fracture. Most commonly, the fibula will subluxate in an anterior-posterior direction in an ankle fracture model. Zenos et al. found that stress lateral radiographs have more inter-observer reliability than stress AP-slash-mortis radiographs and that two syndesmotic screws are stronger than one. The article by Kandal Quoto et al. is a biomechanical study that found more anterior-posterior instability in a syndesmosis injury model, and more ankle instability is noted with syndesmosis injury and a concomitant deltoid injury. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following have been found to affect the rate of perioperative infections or wound complication rates in foot and ankle surgery? And the choices are 1. Methotrexate, 2. Gold, 3. Hydroxychloroquine, 4 TNF-alpha inhibitors, and 5 smoking. So clinical studies have shown that smoking cessation for 4 weeks reduces the risk of infection to the level of non-smokers. Adverse effects on wound healing caused by chemotherapy used to treat rheumatoid arthritis has not been borne out in the literature. But the correct answer to this question is 5, smoking. Moving on to the next question. In the Log-Hansen classification system, a pronation abduction ankle fracture has what characteristic fibular fracture pattern? And the choices are 1. Transverse fracture below the level of the syndesmosis. 2. Short oblique fracture running from antero-inferior to posterior-superior. 3. Short oblique fracture running from posterior-inferior to antero-superior. 4. Comminuted fracture at or above the level of the syndesmosis. And 5. A Wagstaff fracture. So in the Log-Hansen classification, the characteristic fibular fracture pattern in a pronation abduction injury is a comminuted fibular fracture above the level of the syndesmosis. So the correct answer to this question is 4, comminuted fracture at or above the level of the syndesmosis. In the first stage of this injury pattern, the deltoid fails in tension or an avulsion fracture of the medial malleolus occurs. In the second stage, the anterior-inferior tibiofibular ligament ruptures or a small bony avulsion of this ligament's insertion-slash-origin occurs. The final stage includes the creation of a comminuted fibular fracture above the level of the syndesmosis. The article by Siegel et al. noted that extraperiosteal bridge plating of these ankle injuries was safe and had excellent radiographic and clinical outcomes at final follow-up. Moving on to the next question. Presence of diabetes-induced peripheral neuropathy has been shown to be an independent risk factor for postoperative complications of which of the following injuries? And the choices are 1. Distal radius fractures, 2. Patella fractures, 3. Metatarsal fractures, 4. Ankle fractures, and 5. Distal femoral fractures. So presence of peripheral neuropathy has important implications in treating ankle fractures in diabetic patients. 
increased immobilization periods, attention to tight glucose control, and adjunct-slash-alternative operative techniques may be necessary for an optimal outcome. So the correct answer to this question is four ankle fractures. The article by Costigan et al. noted that peripheral neuropathy is the most significant risk factor for postoperative complications, followed closely by lack of pedal pulses preoperatively. The article by Jones et al. noted a significantly higher complication rate in diabetics with operative ankle fractures and reported that neuroarthropathy is a significant risk factor for postoperative complications. Moving on to the next question. Following operative repair of a lower extremity long bone and periarticular fracture, what is the time frame for patients to return to normal automobile braking time? And the choices are 1. 6 weeks after initiation of weight-bearing, 2. 4 weeks postoperatively, 3. 8 weeks from the date of injury, 4. Once full range of motion of the ankle and knee exist, and 5. At the time of bony union. So according to the reference by Eagle et al., Appropriate breaking time returns at a point six weeks after initiation of weight-bearing after treatment of lower extremity long bone and periarticular fractures as examined with the driving simulator. No differences were seen in return of breaking time between periarticular fractures and long bone injuries. So the correct answer to this question is one, six weeks after initiation of weight-bearing. In another article by Eagle et al., they studied only operatively treated ankle fractures and found that time to appropriate breaking returns at nine weeks postoperatively. Interestingly, no significant association was found between the functional scores and normalization of total breaking time. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following is most predictive of a medial-sided ankle injury in the presence of a fibula fracture above the level of the joint? And the choices are 1. Severe medial ankle tenderness, 2. Severe medial ankle ecchymosis, 3. Stress radiographs showing the medial clear space measuring 6 mm and the superior joints measuring 3 mm, 4. Inability to ambulate, and 5. Medial ankle swelling. So isolated log Hansen supination external rotation type ankle fractures comprise 20% to 40% of ankle fractures and non-surgical management is effective for managing SER2 ankle fractures. Tornetta and Associates recently showed that medial ankle tenderness, ecchymosis, and swelling are not reliable findings when trying to determine deltoid competence. Stress radiographs showing a medial clear space of greater than 4 mm or one that is also 1 mm greater than the superior joint space or any lateral talar subluxation are indicative of deltoid incompetence and indicative of an SER4 ankle fracture. So the correct answer to this question is three, stress radiographs showing the medial clear space measuring six millimeters and the superior joint space measuring three millimeters. Moving on to the next question. The use of anti-glide plates for fixation of lateral malleolar fractures is most commonly associated with injuries to the, and the choices are one, peroneus brevis tendon, two, lateral plantar nerve, three, superficial perineal nerve, four, sural nerve, and five, distal tibial fibular syndesmosis. So posterior anti-glide plating of Weber type B fibular fractures provides a biomechanically stronger construct when compared to lateral plating. However, high rates, that is up to 43% of hardware removal, have been reported because of perineal tendon symptoms. The peroneus brevis tendon is most commonly involved and is often injured by a prominent screw in the most distal hole of the plate. So the correct answer to this question is one, peroneus brevis tendon. Moving on to the next question. The cotton test evaluates which of the following structures, and the choices are 1. Calcaneofibular ligament, 
2. Lateral ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow, 3. Ligamentum flavum, 4. Anterior talofibular ligament, and 5. Ankle syndesmosis. So the inferior tibiofibular syndesmosis is a fibrous articulation consisting of four ligaments. The elasticity of these ligaments permits axial, vertical, anterior, posterior, and medial lateral motion at the ankle syndesmosis during weight bearing. So the correct answer to this question is 5. Ankle syndesmosis. Of note, the Cotton test was originally described around 1910 by Frederick J. Cotton as the Taylor Glide test, evaluating the medial-slash-lateral translation of the talus in the mortise. A positive result indicates disruption of the ankle syndesmosis in the face of an ankle injury. Nielsen et al. reported that the level of the fibular fracture does not correlate reliably with the integrity or extent of the interosseous membrane tears identified on MRI in operative ankle fractures. Therefore, one cannot consistently estimate the integrity of the interosseous membrane and subsequent need for transsyndesmotic fixation based solely on the level of the fibular fracture. This supports the need for intraoperative stress testing, i.e. external rotation stress or cotton test, of the ankle syndesmosis in all operative ankle fractures. In the study by Leeds et al., the authors noted a correlation between syndesmosis reduction, that is initial and final, and outcomes, that is radiographic and clinical. Moving on to the next question, what is the most appropriate plating technique utilized for the medial malleolus fracture typically seen in a displaced supination adduction ankle fracture? And the choices are 1. Tension band plating, 2. Anti-glide plating, 3. Bridge plating, 4. Neutralization plating, and 5. Submuscular plating. So a supination adduction ankle fracture leads to a vertical fracture of the medial malleolus. Traditional fixation of the medial malleolus with oblique screws from the tip of the malleolus directed proximally will ineffectively protect against shear forces at the fracture site. These also are directed quite obliquely to the vertical fracture line and therefore have poor biomechanical resistance to failure. An anti-glide plate is used medially to prevent displacement of the fracture segment due to shear forces. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Anti-glide plating. According to the article by Tulin et al., Placement of two horizontal, that is perpendicular to the fracture line, lag screws from medial to lateral are biomechanically the most important aspect of the construct, whether a plate is used or not. Moving on to the next question. Lateral malleolus fractures can be treated with a variety of techniques, including posterior anti-glide plating or lateral neutralization plating. What is an advantage of using lateral neutralization plating instead of posterior anti-glide plating? And the choices are 1. Decreased joint penetration of distal screws. 2. Increased rigidity. 3. Decreased need for delayed hardware removal. 4. Decreased perineal irritation. And 5. Improved distal fixation. So posterior anti-glide plating is a technique that involves placement of a plate on the posterior aspect of the distal fibula using the plate as a reduction tool and direct buttress against distal fracture fragment displacement. Schaefer et al. showed from a biomechanical standpoint that posterior antiglide plating was superior to lateral neutralization plating for distal fibula fracture fixation. Weber et al. reported a 43% rate of plate removal secondary to perineal discomfort. In addition, perineal tendon lesions were found in 9 of the 30 patients. So the correct answer to this question asking the advantage of using lateral neutralization plating instead of posterior antiglide plating, the correct answer is 4. Decreased perineal irritation. Moving on to the next question, the talocrural angle of an ankle mortise x-ray is formed between a line perpendicular to the tibial plafond and a line drawn, and the choices are 1. Perpendicular to the medial clear space, 2. Parallel to the talar body, 
three between the tips of the malleoli, four perpendicular to the shaft of the fibula, and five parallel to the subtalar joint. So the talocrural angle is formed by the intersection of a line perpendicular to the plafond with a line drawn between the malleoli, with an average of 83 plus or minus 4 degrees. When the lateral malleolus is shortened secondary to fracture, this can lead to an increased talocrural angle. This malunion leads to lateral tilt of the talus. Phillips et al. looked at 138 patients with a closed grade 4 supination external rotation or pronation external rotation ankle fracture. Although the conclusions were limited due to poor follow-up, they found the difference in the talocrural angle between the injured and normal sides was a statistically significant radiographic indicator of a good prognosis. Petron et al. looked at a series of 146 displaced ankle fractures and the effect of open or closed treatment and internal fixation of one or both malleoli. They found open reduction proved superior to closed reduction, and in bimalleolar fractures, open reduction of both malleoli was better than fixing only the medial side. And moving on to the final topic for this review session of replantation, the first question reads, All the following are absolute indications to replantation in the hand except, and the choices are 1. Amputation of multiple digits, 2. Thumb amputation, 3. Amputation at the level of the palm, 4. Single-digit amputation distal to the flexor digitorum superficialis insertion, and 5. Isolated amputation of the little finger proximal to the flexor digitorum superficialis in a child. So a single-digit amputation distal to the flexor digitorum superficialis or FDS insertion is a relative indication for replantation, not an absolute indication. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Single-digit amputation distal to the flexor digitorum superficialis insertion. Absolute indications for replantation include thumb amputations, multiple-digit amputations, amputations at the level of the wrist or palm, and any amputation in a child. The aforementioned injuries result in significant loss of hand function and are therefore a priority for surgical repair. Although replantation of single-digit amputations is rarely indicated, amputations distal to the FDS insertion have been found to have good functional results after replantation. As such, these injuries are a relative indication for replantation. Sokakis reviewed the indications and selection criteria for digital amputation and replantation. He found the most significant guideline underlying the philosophy of digital replantation to be the aim of not only ensuring the survival of a digit, but its functional use. Frederick et al. analyzed the geographic distribution of upper extremity replant procedures, patient factors, and characterized the facilities performing these procedures. They found that regionalization of replantation care and more broadly emergency hand care may allow the hand surgery community to provide more efficient and facile care for these patients. Moving on to the next question. A 30-year-old healthy female sustains a traumatic digit amputation while working at a factory. Which of the following is an absolute indication for digit replantation in this patient? And the choices are 1. Isolated amputation of the index finger proximal to the FDS insertion. 2. Amputation due to crush injury. 3. Replantation of an index finger with a segmental injury. 4. Isolated amputation of the thumb proximal to the FPL insertion. And 5. Presentation 13 hours after the amputation occurred. So the unique functional role of the thumb in opposition and pinch dictates that it be replanted whenever possible in a healthy patient, regardless of their level of amputation. The remainder of the answer choices are relative contraindications for digit replantation. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Isolated amputation of the thumb proximal to the FPL insertion. 
Bulas et al. outline indications and contraindications for digit replantation after traumatic amputation. Contraindications to replantation include multilevel or segmental injury, a single-digit proximal to the FDS insertion, a severe crush or mangling injury, extreme contamination, prior impaired function, concomitant life-threatening injury, severe medical problems, anesthetic risk, and major psychiatric disorder. Waikako et al. determined the influencing factors of the immediate and late outcome of replantation and revascularization of amputated digits. They found that the type of injury was the most important factor influencing immediate and late outcomes. They also determined that connecting the profundus tendon stump of the proximal part to the superficialis tendon of the amputated part gave a better result than two-tendon repair and repairing only the profundus tendon. Moving on to the next question. Replantation is indicated for which of the following amputations? And the choices are 1. Multiple-level amputation of the small finger at the proximal and distal interphalangeal joints. 2. Crushed amputation through the distal phalanx of the middle finger. 3. Complete ring avulsion of the ring finger with tendon injury. 4. Thumb amputation through the proximal phalanx shaft. And 5. Middle finger amputation through the proximal phalanx shaft. So as outlined by Peterson, the contraindications to replantation are more relative than the indications, but they include the following. Single finger replantations at the level of zone 2, that is from the A1 pulley to the distal sublimus tendon insertion, and these are rarely indicated, with the notable exception of the thumb. Amputated parts that are severely crushed and those with multiple level injuries have poor function even if they survive replantation. While ring avulsion injuries with a vascular injury and no bone, tendon, or nerve injury, that is an urbaniac type 2A ring avulsion injury, should be repaired, ring avulsion injuries with bone, tendon, or nerve injury, that is an urbaniac type 2B, or with complete degloving, urbaniac type 3, have poor outcomes and urbaniac and colleagues recommended amputation for such injuries. Very distal amputations at the level of the nail bed are marginally indicated as there needs to be approximately 4 millimeters of intact skin proximal to the nail fold for adequate veins to be present. Indications for replantation that rule out the other four choices of this question include the following. Overall, thumb replantation probably offers the best functional return. Even with poor motion and sensation, the thumb is useful to the patient as a post for opposition. The replanted thumb offers the best reconstruction available, toe transfers notwithstanding. Replantation beyond the level of the sublimus tendon insertion that is zone 1 usually results in good function. Multiple finger amputations present reconstructive difficulties that may be difficult to correct without replantation of one or all of the amputated digits. Any hand amputation from zone 3 distally to zone 5 proximally offers the chance of reasonable function after replantation, usually superior to available prostheses. Although usually indicated, the replantation of any hand or arm proximal to the level of the mid-forearm must be carefully considered. But the correct answer to this question asking about replantation is indicated for which of the following amputations. The correct answer is 4. Thumb amputation through the proximal phalanx shaft. Moving on to the next question. Each of the following are indications for microvascular replantation except. And the choices are 1. Thumb amputation. 2. Index finger amputation in a child. 3 through wrist amputation, 4. Long finger amputation through the proximal phalanx, and 5. Mid-palm amputation of all four fingers. So as reviewed by Secaucus, there are several major indications for single-digit replantation. 1. Level of the amputation is distal to the insertion of the FTS. 
two amputations at the level of the distal phalanx, three ring avulsion injuries involving both the dorsal and palmar skin and blood supply in an isolated finger as long as the FDS is intact, four, any amputation in a child, and five, thumb amputation. Replantation of a single digit which is amputated at the level of the proximal phalanx or at the PIP joint, particularly in avulsion or crush injury, is contraindicated. Secaucus also discusses appropriate surgical teams, transport, and other related issues surrounding a transplant team. But the correct answer to this question is four, long finger amputation through the proximal phalanx is not an indication for microvascular replantation, making it the correct answer to this accept question. Moving on to the next question, ischemia induced by the conversion of hypoxanthine to xanthine is thought to be involved in the mechanism of reperfusion injury following restoration of circulation after replantation. Which of the following agents inhibits conversion to xanthine and has been shown to improve outcomes following digit replantation? And the choices are 1. Tissue plasminogen activator, 2. Heparin, 3. COX-2 inhibitor, 4. Allopurinol, and 5. Leeches. So allopurinol is a xanthine oxidase inhibitor and may have a beneficial role in replantation. Inhibition of xanthine oxidase also decreases uric acid in patients with gout. So the correct answer to this question is 4, allopurinol. Wykukul et al. published a randomized controlled trial with a two-year follow-up comparing thumb replantation with and without adjunctive allopurinol. There were 60 patients in the trial group and 38 patients in the control group. All were young, healthy laborers who had sharp or locally crushed amputations of the thumb at the proximal phalanx with a total ischemic time of greater than 10 hours. The standard management for thumb replantation was used in these patients, except that 300 mg of allopurinol was given orally in the trial group on admission and a further 300 mg for another 5 days. After the operation, the trial group had a lower infection rate and less postoperative pain and chronic swelling than the control group. Recovery of sensation was also better in the trial group. So again, the correct answer to this question is 4, allopurinol. Moving on to the next question, which of the following amputations may be considered a relative contraindication for a replantation? And the choices are 1, ring finger through the proximal phalanx shaft, 2, mid forearm, 3, thumb through the proximal phalanx, 4, middle ring and small fingers through the middle phalanx shaft, and 5, complete hand just proximal to the distal palmar crease. So replantation of a single finger amputated proximal to the insertion of the flexor superficialis tendon is a relative contraindication because of the severe stiffness and poor function encountered after repairs in this location. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Ring finger through the proximal phalanx shaft is a relative contraindication for a replantation. The FDS insertion is in the middle of the middle phalanx and is also what defines the distal border of zone 2 in flexor tendon injuries. If the finger is cut proximal to the insertion of the FDS, that means that FDS is also cut and needs to be repaired, leading to severe stiffness and worse PIP function. The exceptions are when there are multiple digits injured or in young children. Arbaniak et al. found replantation of a single finger amputated distal to the insertion of the flexor superficialis tendon is justified, but that replantation of a single finger that was amputated proximal to this insertion is not indicated. Tamai et al. found that an amputation of the hand, forearm, arm, and thumb, as well as multiple digits, are all criteria for replantation. Moving on to the next question, what is the most important factor influencing immediate and late outcome of digit replantation? And the choices are 1. Gender, 
2. Anastomosing the proximal profundus tendon stump to the superficialis tendon of the amputated digit. 3. Regular cigarette smoking. 4. Utilization of composite skin and subcutaneous vein graft. And 5. Mechanism of digit amputation injury. So the level 2 study by Y. Kukul et al. is a cohort of 552 patients that underwent 1,018 digit replantations. Mechanism of injury was the most important factor influencing the survival rate with an odds ratio of 46.3. Specifically, avulsion, degloving, and extensive crushed amputation resulted in a low survival rate and poor functional outcome. Cigarette smoking and male gender were associated with worse results but not to the degree of the mechanism of injury. Utilization of composite skin and subcutaneous vein grafts as well as connecting the profundus to the superficialis at the anastomosis correlated to better outcomes. After the operation, 329 of the 946 survived digits, that is 34.7%, in 180 patients, or 35.4%, needed further reconstructive surgery to improve their function. Tenolysis was the most common procedure, followed by stage tendon grafting and capsulotomy. So the correct answer to this question asking what is the most important factor influencing immediate and late outcome of digit replantation, the correct answer is 5, mechanism of digit amputation injury. The article by Wang et al. found that tendon procedures, specifically tenolysis, accounted for 47.2% of secondary surgeries following digit replantation. Moving on to the next question. A 34-year-old male undergoes a thumb replantation after an industrial meat slicer accident. At 4 hours postoperatively, there is a drop from 33 degrees Celsius to 29 degrees Celsius, and the pulse oximetry monitor on the thumb reads 87%. All of the following are treatment options for the management of his arterial inflow insufficiency except, and the choices are 1. Administer IV heparin, 2. Administer estelate ganglion block, 3. Placement of leeches on the thumb, 4. Inspect the dressing for any constriction, and 5. Place the thumb in a dependent position. So arterial thrombosis after digit replantation typically occurs within the first 12 hours postoperatively, whereas venous thrombosis slash congestion occurs after the first 12 hours postoperatively. So arterial thrombosis after digit replantation typically occurs within the first 12 hours postoperatively, whereas venous thrombosis slash congestion occurs after the first 12 hours postoperatively. Leeches excrete hirudin, which is 100 times more potent than heparin, but are typically used for the treatment of venous thrombosis-slash-congestion and not arterial thrombosis. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Placement of leeches on the thumb. Miller's review states a drop in temperature greater than 2 degrees Celsius in 1 hour or temperatures below 30 degrees Celsius indicates a decreased digital perfusion. If arterial insufficiency develops, release constrictive bandages, place the extremity in a dependent position, consider heparinization, consider stellate ganglion blockade, or explore early if these maneuvers do not work. Moving on to the next question. A 34-year-old male sustains amputations of the fourth and fifth fingers at the level of the middle phalanx after cutting them with a butcher knife. Which of the following techniques would most likely increase total surgical time during replantation? And the choices are 1. Utilizing an on-call surgical team experienced at digit replantations, 2. Digit-by-digit digit repair method, 3. Structure-by-structure structure repair method, 4. Bone-shortening procedures to avoid the need for vein grafts, and 5. Obtaining a thorough inventory of the digit structures that are deficient and the structures that are available for reconstruction. So surgical time in multiple-digit replantation is increased by digit-by-digit digit repair techniques and decreased by structure-by-structure structure repair techniques. 
So the correct answer to this question is two, digit by digit repair method. The level five article by Morrison and McComb reviews the indications and results of finger replantation. Results of replantation from the DIP to PIP joint typically have good outcomes, whereas replantations at the proximal interphalangeal joint to MCP joint have poor outcomes due to flexion contractures. The review article by Wang cites that tenolysis and tendon procedures were needed in 47.2% of the published cases of digit replantation and is the leading type of secondary operation. The classic article by Y. Kukul et al. reviewed 1,018 digital replantations in 552 patients. They had a 92% rate of successful outcome and found that type of injury was the most important factor influencing immediate and late outcome. And moving on to the final question for this review session, all the following factors are favorable for digit survival after replantation surgery except, and the choices are 1. Sharply amputated digit, 2. Crushed amputated digit, 3. Warm ischemia time of 8 hours, 4. Patient age of 10 years, and 5. Female gender. So why Kukul et al. in a study of 1,018 replantations found that type of injury was the most important factor influencing immediate and late outcomes. Extensively crushed injuries had the worst outcome, followed by degloving and avulsion injuries. Sharp cut injuries fared the best. Regular cigarette smoking resulted in poor immediate survival rate and prolonged ischemia had a significant influence in final functional outcome, but neither were as important as mechanism of injury. Alcohol consumption was also a negative predictor. Favorable factors for replantation survival were female gender, age under 13 years old, and non-smokers. Regarding ischemia time, Miller recommends less than 12 hours of warm ischemia time or less than 24 hours of cold ischemia for a digit to obtain optimal outcomes. But the correct answer to this question is two, crushed amputated digit is not favorable for digital survival after replantation surgery, which makes it the correct answer in this accept question. That's all for this review session about ankle fractures and replantation. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.